Well, this morning, we're moving back into 2 Timothy chapter 1. So if you turn to your Bibles to 2 Timothy, it's a little bit farther closer to the end of the New Testament. Uh, Stephen and I are going through this book as a way to help us as a congregation, help us as pastors, but also help us as a congregation look to God's Word as the way that it shapes us, that it forms us, that it directs us and guides us. And this morning, I want to bring to us this passage in 2 Timothy 1, verses 3 through 7, where the focus of this is what I think so many of us wrestle with, which is fanning the flame of the gift of God, fanning the flame of faith. So let's hear from God's word this morning. 2 Timothy 1, verses 3 through 7. This is God's word for us. I thank God whom I'm, who I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Louis, and your mother, Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as you bring us to your word, pray that you would open our minds, our hearts, all of our lives to hear from you to hear the truths of your gospel and to hear the, the empowerment of your spirit that we can be encouraged, that we can be ignited, that we can be anchored to the source of our faith. And I pray this because you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Last week we heard Robert talking about Romans 11 and, and the rich beauty that is packed into that passage. And he kept saying, next week we're going to hear about how the Gentiles are grafted in. And that's totally true, just not from Romans 11. So here we are in 2 Timothy 1, and this is actually the passage, the, the scripture, the letter that Paul has written to one of his young disciples who has done exactly that. Paul's and Timothy's message has been to bring the gospel, the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ to many different churches that are full of Gentiles. And here in, in 2 Timothy, he's putting that on display. He's uh, working that out. He's trying to mold and shape that and knead that dough into the life of the church, especially into the the thought and the understanding, that the deeper explanation of what Timothy should be about. So, big picture of what 2 Timothy, this letter is about. Paul's starting here, and his introduction in, in this, this letter is very formal in that sense. He's thanking God, he's praying for Timothy, and he's saying, now fan, because I'm reminded of these important things, now do this, fan the flame of the gift. 
And what he's going to move from there, we're going to see the next time Stephen gets to preach is in uh, chapter 1, verse 8. He's going to be, because it's a gift, you don't need to be ashamed of it. You actually take the, the natural, maybe sin tendency of shame and guilt that our responsibility has. You don't need to be ashamed of that. You actually get to fan that flame. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. And he's going to move from there into two verses. One and say, you then, my child, my child in the faith, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And in case that's a not, not enough of a, like, empower, an, an impetus for us to go and be motivated, he's going to move on and explain a little bit more in chapter 3. What is the source of that grace? What does that grace actually do? And, and you all have heard this or memorized this or, or had this explained in some degree. And he's going to say in 2 Timothy 3.16, the grace actually is in and through the message of the gospel. And that message comes to us in Scripture. And Scripture, because it's God-breathed, it is profitable for you. And because that is true, then his kind of conclusion in this letter is in 4, verse 2, where he lands with this really important, weighty command, now preach the word. This is beautiful. And this big structure of where Paul is writing to to Timothy here, I don't want to miss some of you either and saying, well, I'm not Timothy. I'm not. I'm not a preacher, I don't have that necessarily, that calling. And the point of this is what I'm trying to draw out here is this letter from Paul to his his young disciple is that he's remembering the past tears to see future joy. He's being reminded of not what faith looks like, but the source of faith, where faith comes from, And then the hinge, the the logical premise that is then anchored and landed in the conclusion is now do this. Do what with faith? Well, fan it in the flame. Get it going. Stir it up and let it spread. So that's my goal here. Now, I apologize for those of you that look at three points. You're like, well, they need to be equally balanced. So 33% of the sermon needs to be on each one. And I'm not good at math, and I'm going to botch that as we go through. So we're going to kind of spend a little more time at the end of this because that's the point. The setup is be reminded, remember this, and land here. So here we go. Whew, okay. We got our seatbelt on. Buckle up, right? Okay, here we go. If it really helps, please have your Bible out. This is what I do. If you can see this, I spend, this is not to boast, please don't hear that. I spend time so that I can see what lines up with what and how the passage is actually anchored. Having this in a block paragraph, it makes my mind go crazy. Because there's such rich flow. There's beauty in the subordinate clauses, the independent clauses, and the prepositional phrases, how the verbs are anchoring what we do with all of this stuff. And there's all these other wonderful things like participles and adjectives that help us understand what all these other things are. And yes, I'm a grammar geek. That's wonderful. And no, that is not the coffee tacky. That's actually grammar. It hypes me up. I love it because it's rich. All the way down to... Scripture is God-breathed at that grammatical level. Praise the good Lord 
that he knows grammar. And he can anchor us, not just in what this message means on like kind of a big, way up there, thematic level. That's also true. Praise the Lord that he draws us all the way down into commas, into verb tense, and all those things. Okay, enough of the setup. Let's get into it. He's saying right off the bat, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors. I, I, I thank the Lord because he has brought me into service just like my ancestors, even though for them it was a promise yet unfulfilled. For Paul, it's a promise that he has seen with his own eyes the fulfillment. And he serves them with a clear conscience. We'll spend more time unpacking that because that's a really weighted, loaded phrase, especially if you understand that this is Paul talking, who spent a lot of his life uh, hunting down, persecuting believers. We'll get to that. But he thanks God as he remembers Timothy constantly in his prayers day and night. And what he remembers is his tears. He remembers Timothy's tears. And he longs to see Timothy again so that he may be filled with joy. What tears is Paul talking about? Well, pick some. Go back to Acts chapter 14. And if you flip there, that quick because I put little stickers in here so I can find it quick. If you flip back to Acts 14, this is kind of Luke's uh, narrative following along what the life and ministry of Paul looks like. And when Paul and Barnabas get to this place called Iconium, they had a mess. They had a mess there, so much so that they thought they were going to die. They mistreated them in verse 5 in Acts chapter 14 and, and stoned them. They learned of that and they fled to Lystra and Derby. And in, it's in Lystra who Paul heals a man who could not use his feet. And because of that healing, that miraculous work of the Holy Spirit through the hands and ministry of Paul, the people in Lystra are like, this is amazing. This must be the God's Greek gods, lowercase g, visiting us and doing all these miracles. Paul's like, no, no, no. You don't get it. Don't put us into the category of Zeus or Apollo. Don't shove us into that box. It ain't that way. I'm a, I'm a human. Look, skin, bones, flesh. I'm not like that. And they're amazed still. Even so, they, they, they're like barely able, Paul and Barnabas are barely able to convince them not to make sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas because what they think is that amazing. So much so that this word spreads, and the, by the time we get to chapter 14, verse 19, the Jews from previous towns, from Antioch, they come to, sorry, in, in Iconium, they come to this town of Lystra, and they're like, we heard about this guy. We didn't fix him the first time, so we're going to do it now. And they start stoning Paul. Now, that's the foreground of the story of what Paul is going through. In the background is this young man, this young man named Timothy. And we hear about him when we get to chapter 16. Paul came back. This is the, the second time around on, on Paul's next missionary journey. They come back around, and a disciple there, chapter 16, verse 1, named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers in this town of Lystra. 
I don't want to read too much into this text, but I also don't want to miss what Luke here, the author of Acts, is trying to help us see in this, this incredible encounter and the, the overlapping relationship of Paul, missionary, and Timothy, disciple. Something happened that in Paul's witness, while going through this series of stories, getting stoned, saying, no, 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 I'm not a god, don't praise, don't sacrifice to me, don't worship me that way, that Timothy's mother and grandmother, who were Jews and therefore believed in the promised Messiah and the deliverance that he would make way, they believed in that promise so much so that they started feeding and nurturing the gift of that faith that had been then planted in them and then passed along to Timothy. So much so that by the time that Paul comes back around in 16, he's a well-spoken of brother in this church that had probably continued to suffer, not had roses and easy life since Paul left. You think the other people around there was bad on Paul when he was there. Oh, he planted this church and now we're going to be worse on them because their leader's gone. We can just stomp out this, this new movement before it even gets a chance to be anchored. All of that is shown that he's a well-spoken of brother and this Timothy, this young man who has had his parents, his mother and grandmother nurture his faith Paul says, I remember, I remember you, and I remember your tears. Which tears is he talking about? The tears from when you saw your, your uh, maybe hero, maybe encourager, maybe father in the faith stoned? Yeah. Your tears when you realized what the faith that he helped you to nurture was, was going to cost you? Yeah. The faith that it cost your mother and your grandmother to pass that along, the tears there, yeah. The tears of when Paul had to leave Timothy multiple times, we see this throughout almost every one of Paul's letters that he writes to all these other churches that Timothy's there along with. Most of the greetings of Paul's letters of I, Paul, and Timothy, and Silvanus greet you. Timothy's there. He's working. He's laboring. He's enjoying what God is providing, and he's crying at the hard things that the Lord provides. So yeah, when Paul and he leave one another, he's probably shedding tears of sadness. But specifically, I think the closest reference to this is when he gets down, Paul gets down to in verse 6, the, the laying on of my hands. When Paul and the other men set apart Timothy specifically for the ministry of the gospel, knowing full well what it will, not might cost him, what it will cost him. And they're shedding tears, tears of joy that he's been called to such a calling. Y'all, please hear this. This is not, yes, this is special. This is ordination. I don't want to diminish that. But this is not just that. Every single one of us, if we understand a Savior, we understand that He calls us. And He calls us to suffering just as much as joy. Actually, it's suffering and joy in our suffering. That the suffering is hard. And I don't want to diminish that because I know you all have felt that. You're, you're 
feeling the weight, the burden of that now. But the joy is that much better because it's a calling and it's a cost and it's a purpose worth suffering for. So he remembers Timothy's tears and he longs to see him again that he may, both of them, will be filled with joy. This is exactly the pattern that we see throughout the New Testament. It's the gospel pattern of suffering that produces joy, rejoicing in afflictions. We just heard in Romans 5, suffering isn't for no purpose. It's for the purpose of building character and hope. We understand the cost of the joys that that discipleship has meant. And this is what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.6, you receive the word, he's talking to the Thessalonians there, you receive the word in much affliction, but with joy in the Holy Spirit. There's a joy there. And so here, the the tears that are tied with joy, the suffering and the, the situations, all of those things that are going on in life and seeming to bear us down and weigh us down and constrict us, that's exactly what God uses to produce joy, to point us outside of ourselves to produce joy. The reason we can know that that is true is what he goes on into the Holy Spirit is the one who's working there. The Holy Spirit gives the gifts that drives faith and gives the purpose that means suffering is for joy. If it was a one-time kind of, here's the deposit now, good luck with that, I'm out, we would have doubts. Just like the kind of gift here that is in mind that, Peter, uh, that Paul is talking about, the, the Holy Spirit gift, we're going to get to this down in the end of verse 7, is contrasted a different kind of fear. It's not that kind of gift. It's a fear of, of uh, what I'm doing, what I'm going to be seen as, the reputation fear. It's not that kind of gift. It's a gift of power, love, and self-control. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit that produces fruit, and this fruit is joy. We'll get to that in a second. But here, the the power, love, and self-control turn us constantly back to the giver. Have you ever gotten one of those gifts? We're not close enough to Christmas, so I won't use that connection. But have you ever gotten one of those, maybe it's a birthday gift, an anniversary gift, a a just gift because your parents love you, and they're like, hey, this is, you know, what day is it? Did I miss something? No, I just love. That's an awesome reason to give a gift. Have you ever gotten one of those gifts and you kind of unwrap it and you're looking at it going, now, I, am I looking at it at the wrong angle? Like, is there another box? Like, what, what, am, what am I missing here? Like, okay, I, I got a Swiss Army knife. Am I supposed to do something with this? Is, is this like a setup for something? Or your parents are like, yeah, we're going to get you this, uh, maybe the, the tickets to something. You're like, I never heard of this band, like, am I supposed to know this? And that, that's really the gift to how awesome something else is going to be. Or the gift of, I don't know, the surprise. The gift of setting aside this date on your calendar, honey, because something awesome is going to come. Like, well, okay, I mean, that's going to be a fun gift, but what is that going to mean? That's more like the kind of gift that the Holy Spirit gives. It's, it's this down payment, the deposit. 
for way bigger things yet to come. And the way bigger things usually come through the route of suffering to get to joy. This is exactly, though, the power of Christ in the gospel. This is the power that Christ can overcome, uh, fill in the blank, weakness, doubt, worry, anxiety, depression, uh, addiction, fear, suffering, being stoned, having your audience doubt that you're even sane. All of those things the the gospel can overcome to show that that's the, the power of the gospel at work in and through us. And that's what Paul's getting at here, that knowing the truth of God's reality, it turns faith into the defining feature. It, it like turns off the valves of fear. It, it makes those, yeah, they're still there. I'm not saying it just like evaporates. But it, it makes the source of what we're enduring faith. So we need to be reminded of the source of faith, point two. Here we see in verse five that the Paul is writing, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. This word sincere is interesting because it's, it's something that's genuine. The genuine, authentic, that, right? It it's doesn't have any pretense. It's not like the fake thing that you turn around on the back and it's just plastic. No, it's, it's authentic. In other words, it's sincere, which means it's true to its source. Sometimes we think of faith as, uh, faith is my faith, it's up to me. You know, God might have kickstarted it, but now really I got to put it on and, you know, pull up my bootstraps or whatever the analogies we want to pull in there. And I've got to do something now. Faith is a gift from beginning to end. And here the, the point that Paul's making to him is remind you of your sincere faith. It's authentic, it's true to its source. And here's the awesome nuance the source actually has humans along its, its route. It has human responsibility bit, baked in, built in. And he talks about you, Timothy, and the source, the sincere faith that first dwelt in your grandmother and your mother. Now let me put the caveat up front, and then we'll get into what I think that is showing us here. The fact that Timothy has a biological mom and grandmother involved in this story does not automatically mean that natural parents produce faith. It's actually very much different. Natural parents don't produce a supernatural faith. We get that, right? Biology is important. I mean, look back in your Old Testament. Lots of times the firstborn son ain't the one that carries along the family name because God likes saying, oh, we're going to mess that up from culture's perspective, so that the power of God can be shown here. All over the place. Yeah, our parents, our biological, natural parents are important, but because we inherit much from them. We, we get passed along uh, good traits and abilities and habits and personality styles and, and skills and work ethic and all of these things. We get, we get a lot of that. But faith doesn't come by nature. That's the exact point that Paul's going to make in many of the other letters. Faith is by promise. And we stand on the gift of that promise. And yet, the faith that God gives needs to be nurtured. 
And so God puts us in families, in biological units, in nature-guided family structures. And he gives parents a responsibility to nurture the faith that was a gift. It's a gift. So we see that connection, the balance maybe of it's a gift of God and it's by human responsibility. Both in how Paul says, your sincere faith was nurtured through your mother and your grandmother, just like the gift of God was brought through the laying on of hands. It's not either or. Don't don't get into those binary categories of either it's God at work or it's man's doing. God's always at work. And it's amazing that sometimes he uses people to do parts of that, to encourage that, to nurture that, to help us see that lived out. So what does this mean? I, th- I think it, it means a couple of important things for both children and parents. And that's a, that's a way of me saying everyone, because we're all either kids or parents, depending on what stage of life we're in, right? So for children, I think this is important to recognize what the gift of faith actually is. Please hear this. If, if you're a younger person and you have a mentality towards your parents that is maybe increasingly skeptical or that I've maybe sometimes witnessed is, is started with some kind of eye roll and then, yeah, okay, sure, I've got to listen to what you have to say. If it's some type of that, Please don't let the distrust or the skepticism or the cynicism of your natural relationship outweigh the God-given responsibility that your parents have. Another way I want to say that, you're going to hear and maybe start listening to many, many other voices that are coming and calling from around the culture Young people, you're bombarded, you're uh, encouraged, you're told to hear this idea because it's either cool or look at the people, the influencers that are sharing this. Take a good look at the people like, I, I love that Chase was just up here and he saw all of those hands that went up. You know Chase, every single person in this room loves you. They would do anything to see the gift that God has given him ignited on fire for the rest of, the, of his life. How much more is that true for those natural people, the natural children that God has given us? So young people here, I'm not, say, I'm not saying to you blindly trust your parents because they're always right. I'm saying look to them. Lean into them. Trust them because God is working through them. Sometimes he works through them, don't I know it, by having us parents fail and needing to come and not just say, please forgive me, but model the grace of God in forgiveness. Some of that time, children, God works through parents by saying, I know you don't know the reasons why now. But trust me, 
you don't want to walk out onto that lake. It looks frozen. It looks solid. Trust me. Don't trust me once you verify that. Just trust me. And some of you are saying, why would I trust this guy up front? I'm neither a perfect parent nor a perfect pastor. Then please don't hear me. Just hear God's word. Because that you can always trust. That will never fail. We will fail you. God's word will always stand firm. And so parents, what does this mean for us? What example can we get from Lois and and Eunice, from the Timothy's grandmother and mother. What is the value there? I think it hinges on that idea of sincere faith. It's true to its source. The word that Paul uses there is is literally the word for unhypocritical. It's one that does what it says. And that does not mean that you're perfect all the time. So parents, your your faith, your sincerity of faith is not measured by your completeness or your consistency. It's, sorry, not your completeness, but your consistency. My eyes got a little cross-eyed there. The sincerity of your faith, if it's a gift of God, how you can communicate that to your children is by its consistency. Not that you're perfect all the time, so just... Deal with it, kids. And the unhypocritical, are you modeling what you say you believe? Do you live grace-guided lives? Do you go back to the source of your faith, your sincere faith? It is the, the, the anchor is there in the gospel. So do you see grace as what got you salvation and Do you see grace as what guides your salvation? Is grace good enough that you're willing to ask forgiveness? That you're willing to seek to be holy as Christ is holy? That you have your identity anchored in who God has made you to be and then you get to serve out of that? Do you see the power of grace at work in your lives and especially in your parenting? So this gets us to our our final point. We see that Paul is reminded of tears. He's reminded of the sincere faith. And he says that really important word, for, for this reason, because he remembers tears, because he's reminded of Timothy's sincere faith, for this reason, I remind you, Timothy, to do what? He's going to land with this really kind of big way to do this and he's not going to get to the how yet so some of you are going to be wait what how do i fan the flame what what, what's that going to look like that's coming in the rest of the book right we'll get to that but he says fan the flame of the gift of god i don't think he's saying this because timothy's flame is is diminishing it's not getting extinguished I think he's encouraging, Timothy, you've seen the gift of God. You've seen that grace at work. So stir it up. Keep it going. Don't let that just stagnate. A friend of mine was reminding me of a really good example of this. Uh, We were trying to start a backyard bonfire, which, by the way, men were having a bonfire, not this Thursday, but next Thursday, you see it in your bulletin, so come out. That's a great 
tag point, right? Bonfires, awesome time to burn stuff. <laughs> safely, safely. So my friend was starting to, trying to start this fire and we'll call him Stephen because his name's Stephen. So Stephen's trying to start this fire. He's like, how do I get this going? I mean, we've tried so many things. We got, I, I think we were using some uh, flammable liquids and some other things. It was really probably not that wise and it just wasn't going. And so another friend came along, and we'll call him Joe, because his name was Joe. And he's like, you know what, I got this really good idea. I've seen this before. And he pulls out his, his gas blower. And he's starting to fan the flame. Like, I'm down there like, that ain't doing it. He gets up the blower, and he's fanning the flame. It's igniting. It's giving those three really important components to fire uh, fuel, heat, and oxygen. He's giving oxygen to that flame, and it's burning. That's what Paul is saying. You, you need to fan the flame. You need to get it going. You need to get it oxygen. Put it into practice so that it's on fire. That white, hot, passionate, deep, lively faith. That's what we want to keep going. So when he says the fan the flame... He's talking about the gift of God. And that word, that, that gift is anchored both back to the sincere faith, which he says, in case we think that that is all on our shoulder, that's me needing to do more, he says it's a sincere faith that dwelt first in your grandmother and dwells in you. It's not a faith out there. It's not a, if you do this, you'll show your faith worth it. It's a faith that dwells in here. If you're Anchored to your faith, if you're fanning into flame the gift of God, it's a gift which is in you, Timothy, and it's in you. How can I be certain of that? It's not just a game with prepositions. It's because the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you if you're a believer. It's the, the, the gift of God is living in you. It's not something external to your circumstance or your situation that you need to fix or just get a different perspective on. It's a gift that's in you that is waiting to be fanned in the flame and it will ignite out of you. And this, this gift, this uh, gift of God, the Spirit at work in us, is not, the gift that God has given us is not a lowercase spirit of fear, but it is a spirit, capital S, spirit of power, of love, and of self-control. What kind of fears drive Paul and Timothy and us? What are we worried about? What is this fear that, that Paul is really making an important emphasis to say, Timothy is not that kind of gift. It's not a gift that allows fears to drive your life. It's actually interesting here, Paul uses a word that is a, a unique word for fear. It's not the normal phobos or phobia, right? We get a lot of words in our English language from that root word. It's not, it's not that phobia. It's not the afraidness of something out there. It's actually the fear is the uh, dilea, or it's the cowardice. It's the faint-heartedness. It's the, I see stuff out there, and I don't think I have it. That type of fear is deadly and dangerous. It's dangerous because it means, well, what do I need to do in order to have it? In order to get over that kind of faint-heartedness, 
a lot of the world says you dig deeper in yourself. You pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You suck it up, buttercup, because you're going to get it done. That's not the gospel, y'all. That's not fanning the flame of the gift of God. It's a gift. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. It's relying more on the gift, on the giver, on the Holy Spirit. How do I know that? Because the gift that God does give in those three, power, love, and self-control, the final one, his concluding of the trio, is self-control. And it's a gift, it's a fruit of the Spirit. But even here, it's not the same exact word. The type of self-control that Paul's encouraging uh, Timothy to have here is a self-control that is sober-minded and sane. It's, It's saying have power, love, and deeper levels of sanity, being in touch with the reality of God's work, not overcome by the fear of what's going on out there. So I want to suggest a, 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 part, a, a pairing of these two ideas. We are in a world that is both very afraid and very unconnected to reality. It's going to pull us in a lot of different directions because of those two important details. It's going to say, you should worry about what's out there. Or it's going to say, you can't control what's going on in here. And the the sad sliver of truth is both of those are true. But if I escape, if I cope, if I try to deal with any of those, the sad truths of reality or the harshness of what I see when I look in the mirror, if I try to deal with those outside of the grace of God, I am lost. I'm I'm at it by myself. I'm up to my own strength. Paul's got plenty to say on that. For it's not in my weakness, it's not in my strength that I'm made strong. It's in my weakness that I rely on Christ's strength more. His power is perfected in me. That's what we're aiming for. So when we see this, the fear, the uncertainty of can I do it needs to be coupled to the confidence, the assurance, the boldness of no, but Christ can. That's where this makes the gift fanned into flame. That's where I can rely on the strength of Christ at work in me. So he's saying to Timothy, keep exercising the gift that God has given you through the Holy Spirit's activity, through his power, through his love, through his self-control. And he's saying it, I know that you have this because God used Paul through the laying on of hands to be a part of that. It's not separated from the natural and the supernatural, the, the God acts and the human responsibility. It's integrated. It's together. God is at work, and he uses people like us. God is at work, and he uses Paul to help disciple Timothy. God is at work, and he uses your parents, young ones, to help shape your hearts. God is at work, and he uses a community, a koinonia of believers to help encourage us, to fan one another's flames in a sense, to help us get back to a sincere faith that is anchored in its source, that is not doubting every wave and craziness of the world around us that is self-controlled. It's sane. It's staying true to the reality of God's work in our world. And that's a beautiful thing. So he's saying, remember the gift that you have. Remember the gift of the gospel. 
some of us might be thinking, I I don't know how to remember that because I don't know if I ever got it. While this book, this letter specifically, is written from a believer to a believer, albeit an older, mature believer, to a younger, maybe less mature believer, the gospel is right there. The good news of Jesus is right there. That the, the way that you go about life is going to dead end at some point. But the free gift of God means that you can look to Jesus. You can receive, receive, not work to earn. Receive what he has provided for you. And it's a sincere faith that is true to its source that relies on the Spirit dwelling in you. That he's started a work in your heart. He's going to keep that flame going. It doesn't rely on you. And I hope that you hear that's good news for you. Now here's my short caveat as I close. There is so much more that should be said on a lot of these things. So please take anything that I've said or that I've said unclearly and either go back to Scripture, unpack some of the other letters that Paul wrote, even the first one to Timothy, or some of the other ones to different churches that include Timothy, in that greeting, go back and start looking at those, seeing how Paul is balancing or saying there's a gift of God and there's human responsibility at work here. Take the gift and use the gift. Rely on the gift. See the Holy Spirit at work. But most of the how to fan the flame, most of that how we do that is going to come in the rest of this letter. He's going to unpack that in, in 2 Timothy 1.8. He's the very next phrase. You see that right after where we left off. We left off in verse 7. Verse 8 says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony. Don't rely on what that makes you feel, whether it's shame or guilt or anything else. But when you see the gift at work, rely on the goodness. Rely on the joy that is produced, not the suffering that starts that. And then later he's going to say in in 1.13, Follow the pattern of sound words. That pattern of the gospel, that suffering produces joy. And then in 2.1, he's going to land us again, be strengthened. How do I fan the gift, of great, the gift of God? How do I fan that flame? 2 Timothy 2.1, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And finally, in verse 4, or sorry, chapter 4, verse 2, he's going to say, preach the word. And that is not just the requirement of people that are called preachers. Every one of us, preach the word in season and out of season. Every one of us need to wake up in the morning, look ourselves in the mirror, and preach the good, free grace of the gospel. That is a gift that we receive, and by that same sincere faith, true to its source, that we're relying on the Holy Spirit moment by moment. Because God's word is breathed out by God, and it's profitable, it will anchor that gift. It will support that gift. It'll keep that gift burning. It's profitable in that gift. It'll show you how to use that incredible gift and it's profitable for teaching reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. It will train you so that someday you'll look around this congregation and and you'll be like, "I, I don't remember that much about what my maybe biological parents did for the faith But that guy that sat right there, 
He taught my son to school. I don't remember much about my, maybe my biological aunts and how they did, but, but that lady, when she was helping me on youth group, and when she went to that trip, and when she talked about this, and when he showed me at Trail Life, and when they were showing me how to build stuff, they were nurturing the faith day in and day out for years. And that's how we can see this. We can see the sincerity of faith at work. So if I can close with this. Looking back on your life, maybe week, month, year, what do you need to remember about the suffering that will show the work of the Spirit and, and show the purpose of God and joy? What do you need to remember back and see joy there where tears might have flowed? What do you need to be reminded about the sincerity of the faith that God has planted in you, he has given you, he has anchored in you when he turned your heart of stone to a heart of flesh? What do you need to remember about the sincerity of your faith? Children, what, what aspect of your being raised in the church is God prompting you? Is he nudging you more towards himself through the examples, some positive, maybe some negative, of those elders around us? Adults, parents, where is God leading you to be examples, not perfect examples, but sincere, unhypocritical examples of faith to those around us? Maybe it's in prayer. Maybe it's in volunteering for VBS. Maybe it's in taking another six minutes out of your day later this afternoon to say, son, daughter, how can I pray for you this week? Where's your heart this week? What are you fearing this week? How can the Holy Spirit help to guide you back to his reality this week? And then lastly, in what area of life do you need to fan the flame of the gift of God? Talk to Joe afterwards. See where that gas blower is. That you can start that puppy up and get that oxygen flowing. Get it excited. Get it energized. Get the Holy Spirit working deeply, thoroughly in your heart. So that gift of God will be a blessing for many as it's intended to be. Let me pray. God, our Father, thank you. Thank you for the gift that you have given us. Thank you that your Holy Spirit has reached into my heart, into our hearts, and given us not a spirit of fear, but given us your spirit of power, of love, and of self-control. God, I pray that you will be at work in us as children to trust you more and as parents to bear that responsibility well, to nurture the supernatural gift of faith that you have given us so that we can see you in daily things, to reach into our faith that dwells in us by the Spirit and reach out to share that to others. 
I pray that you would be powerfully at work here through your word, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.